Welcome to Body of Work, an exploration of health topics in the news and important issues facing science with experts from Baylor College of Medicine. I'm Erin Blair, and my guest today is cardiovascular surgeon and surgical chair, Dr. Todd Rosengart. How is the age demographic of physicians changing? Well, it's an important issue. The age demographic is actually going to create a significant burden on the healthcare delivery in the United States. Um, a number of, uh, an increasing number of surgeons and physicians overall are reaching the age where they're going to be uh, functioning as physicians who are 60 years and older. The number right now is, a, is about 25,000, and that is going to at least quadruple in the, ne- in the next decade. Wow. So what does it look like in previous decades? Uh, the number of surgeons who are retiring at a reasonably early age had been uh, significantly higher than now. Uh, the number of surgeons who are uh, looking to uh, continue working into their uh, 70s, uh, 60s and 70s, is uh, beginning to increase. There are a lot of different reasons for that. Some are very good. The functionality of uh, physicians and surgeons who are older continues to improve. Um, some of it is, quite frankly, financial. Uh, the concerns about their ability to retire. Do you have a sense of what the current average age of a retiring surgeon is? Um, I don't. That number is not really available. However, what's very interesting is uh, surgeons in particular, and there has been a survey on this, um, usually um, do not have a good sense of when they should retire based upon their cognitive skills, even their clinical competency. Um, So what would be desirable is to give them good feedback about whether or not it's time to start switching into uh, activities that take them out of the operating room and into other very important roles, be it uh, teaching, research, mentoring, administrative support, or the like. What will it look like in the future? Do we see physicians, surgeons practicing even even longer? I do. I think um, there is a significant shortfall in the uh, physician workforce. Uh, we, there's an estimate that there will be a gap of at least 100,000 physicians in the uh, coming uh, decades. Um, so clearly that is going to put a lot of strain on the physician manpower uh, or physician human power ability. Uh, or availability. Uh, so we're, there's going to be a, an increasing need um, and push to have surgeons and physicians who are 60s or even uh, 70s continuing to practice. What aspects of aging in particular would directly affect a surgeon's ability to operate? Well, on the positive side, as we get older, hopefully we've all gained a lot of experience and learned from that experience. So the older surgeon or physician, for that matter, tends to do better on the basis of their experience. That's obviously not a surprise. On the other hand, there's there's very clear data that beginning really in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, uh, there becomes a significant decline in cognitive function and overall capabilities. Again, not necessarily a surprise. And that can be as much as 20% when uh, you've performed standardized cognitive testing on physicians. Interestingly, In general, physicians and surgeons tend to do better than the general public, Uh, perhaps not a surprise, um, and that that does um, negate or counterbalance some of this change in cognitive function. Experience plays an important part. The expression older and wiser uh, exists for a reason. Uh, And the importance of what we really need to do is figure out where Uh, Those uh, different factors balance out. The Society of Surgical Chairs feels that that is on the basis of competency and cognitive testing. 
beginning at an appropriate age so we can make sure that the right um, ta capable and competent physicians and surgeons continue to practice, but conversely that we make sure those who may um, not be balanced in terms of that um, experience versus cognitive abilities um, are kept abreast of and are, are properly transitioned into non-clinical or non-operative roles. Has any research shown that older surgeons have poorer outcomes than younger ones? Yes, that's a great question. It actually, there is research that cuts both ways. There, there are clearly studies that would suggest overall um, surgeons who are older do not do as well on things like um, incorporation of current guidelines, medical knowledge, um, even some outcomes. On the other hand, there are, there are studies that show just the opposite, that they do better than younger, less experienced surgeons. And so I, I think the takeaway from that is you can't generalize in, any, in one way or the other about um, clearly there's an age cutoff in, in terms of who may or may not uh, be credentialed or continue to uh, practice. But it's important, on the other hand, on an individualized basis to make sure we're keeping an uh, active eye out and alert out to make sure that when there is a change in capability that we pick up on this, um, at the end of the day, the most important thing is to make sure our patients are well taken care of. Can years of experience and judgment compensate for modest physical and cognitive declines? Oh, I think absolutely so. And um, there's no metric to measure that um, a priori or prospectively. And again, another reason why um, making sure that we, that we test physicians um, so we don't second guess that that issue is going to, I think, be very, very important, especially going back to your first question, is the percentage of physicians and surgeons who are older and continuing to practice in the workforce increases proportionate to the total number of physicians. So you are a surgical chair at Baylor. Uh, what's that mean to a layperson? Sure. Um, I guess the uh, framework for that is at any institution, a college, a university, or the like, typically there are different departments. Um, in a regular university, that might be the Department of History, the Department of uh, English, and usually the leader of that, gr that department and the particular faculty of that department is called the chair. Uh, in the old days, we used to say chairman. Thankfully, those days are behind us, and now we just say chair. In a medical school, those departments and chairs become a little bit more specific, of course, for um, the practice of medicine. So you have chairs of medicine uh, who take care of uh, the medical specialties like gastroenterology or the like. And then you have a chair of surgery, which obviously takes care as oversight of uh, the faculty involved in surgery. So that could be general surgeons, cardiac surgeons, vascular surgeons, and the like. So at Baylor, I'm uh, the chair of surgery, the Michael E. DeBakey Department of Surgery. We have about 170 faculty members in our department. And then we also have oversight, in our case, of about 120 resident trainees. And then, of course, the education of medical students who will rotate through our services and, and practices. And does that translate into a, a national role for you as well? Yeah, so um, back in about 1965, interestingly, uh, the chairs, the surgery chairs, all said it would be useful to compare notes. And so the Society of Surgical Chairs, which I'm president of for this year, um, was formed. And it was really just an opportunity uh, to get together, compare notes, look at opportunities to improve the profession. About two or three years ago, we asked the question, um, how do you deal with the challenge of a senior surgeon who may or may not feel like he or she is ready to retire, and you as a surgeon chair feels that they might be? 
Uh, so that was sort of an exploratory session. And interestingly, uh, everyone who was involved in this peer group session, A, thought it was a very significant problem. Almost all of us had different war stories to share and compare. And all of us felt that not enough was being done to deal with that. Why is this topic challenging? There's a lot of reasons. They're, they're very sensitive. Um, and one reason why we wanted to tackle this is uh, the group of surgery chairs is to, uh, to avoid those sensitivities. Um, in particular, if there are no general guidelines, then all of these interactions seem very ad hoc, potentially uh, personal, potentially uh, retaliatory mm. in some way, and certainly uh, arbitrary. Uh, so what we want to do is proactively um, engage uh, physicians as they get older in a long-term process so that the expectations are clear. There's a clear runway ahead of uh, each of us and so that we understand the, our expectations. Fascinatingly, if you look at the airline industry where there is a mandatory retirement age, which is, is fairly young, it's at 65. Mm-hmm. I'm almost 60, so that's very young to me. Um, it appears from what we've uh, read and what we've heard that the airline pilots actually do very well with that mandatory age, mostly because they know it's coming. It's well, done, it's well known, it's out there, and they have years and years to prepare in advance so that when that date comes, again, there's not that one-off where it's uncertain what, what their future is going to be. So the key on all this to avoid it being sensitive is to plan well ahead, even mid-career, Um, so that what comes after uh, you transition out of the operating room or the clinic uh, is well communicated in advance. And there's a plan in place, be it financial, practice uh, patterns, or even uh, the the, uh, cultural and psychological elements of not tagging your uh, self-worth, self-value, self-perception to being in the operating room or at the bedside, but being able to understand that you can contribute in a valuable and significant way in other important activities. When you think about it, the experienced physician has so much to offer to students, to residents, to trainees in terms of that accrued knowledge, information, experience that you mentioned, that it would be a shame to waste that talent um, contributed to a younger generation but we want to make sure it feels valuable to that physician as they transition as well. So what were some of the recommendations of your survey? Uh, Our survey, first of all, showed that the Society of Surgical Chairs uh, really was very, very supportive of early career uh, counseling, mentoring, career planning, retirement planning, uh, and then thinking about ways to transition. So those ways are, are again, fairly obvious. There's an important role and opportunity for physicians and surgeons to be involved in mentoring trainees and students, uh, be involved in uh, peer review and administrative leadership roles, uh, teaching, education, even research roles, and then other hospital or medical school or, or um, other institutional roles in, in an administrative support um, basis. The other part is it's also okay to retire. Do you think the surgeon lifestyle makes it difficult to retire? Oh, absolutely. The surgeon, I think, in general, uh, every surgeon I know, uh, views their value, their worth, and even their raison d'etre, so to speak, based upon their being in the operating room, doing what they love, being able to take care of patients, to the point where I would actually think that surgeons in particular almost feel guilty 
uh, if they're not and not lose their value of self-worth if they're not doing those things. So I think we need to educate um, our, our colleagues that there are valuable and important ways to contribute that go beyond being in the operating room. Why do you think that uh, these surgeons uh, resist suggestions to slow down as they get older? Again, I, I think it's how we uh, place um, self-worth and, and value on that activity that's in the operating room. Uh, if we, there, some of that is financial. We pay surgeons to operate. We don't necessarily pay surgeons uh, to be mentors and leaders. Uh, and so it's, it's important that we recalibrate that in a way that um, surgeons and physicians in general can, can contribute in a way that they feel that is valued and supported that goes beyond the operating room, again, ex- expanding to physicians in general, taking care of patients uh, at the clinic or in the bedside uh, as well. What does the current transition process look like? Basically, there is none, and that's the problem. Uh, this often becomes an emergency when it, there's a bad clinical outcome. All of a sudden, that physician is under review. This was not telegraphed in advance. Uh, one day, everything is fine, and the next day, there is a catastrophe. So that, of course, is about the worst way you can possibly do this. And again, one reason why we think this is important and excited about this initiative, we're actually going to try to collaborate with the American College of Surgeons on this effort, um, is because there is no process. Uh, it's been a very sensitive issue. There's always concerns about age discrimination, even though legally uh, there's a clear precedent that when it comes to patient safety, these measures are very appropriate. Uh, but we need to put something together in an organized, proactive way, spanning years, if not decades, again, so that this does not become an ad hoc, catastrophic moment uh, where emotions are high and uh, the ability to plan in advance is, is least applicable. What do you think of a mandatory retirement age? I think mandatory retirement age, and this is supported by not only outside studies, but by our Society of Surgical Chairs uh, survey as well, uh, does not make sense. And I think that's a very, very important uh, point. Uh, We clearly know that there's a lot of heterogeneity between how a 165-year-old might function versus another. One, in fact, it may be very appropriate to consider retirement uh, either voluntary or even uh, supported by a review process. Other 65-year-olds are well within their capabilities to go on for a significant number of years. And that's, again, why we advocate for an individualized competency and cognitive uh, as well as a physical testing regimen so we can certify and make sure that physicians, as they get older, continue to be uh, credentialed and, and appropriate for continuing their practices. This will probably move forward um, working with individual hospitals to create credentialing or reappointment criteria uh, that likely would, would involve things like cognitive testing, peer review, um, and even outside uh, testing or counseling if, if necessary. Rather like getting your driver's license. It's really. exactly. Why, why should it not be much different than that? That's exactly right. That's a great comparison. Uh, if we uh, need to get tested uh, to get a driver's license, I certainly think uh, to get tested to fly an airplane, run a nuclear reactor, or take care of patients should uh, be taken with uh, equal seriousness and uh, care. Um, and, and perhaps it's uh, inappropriate that we're not already doing so. At what age could late career practitioner policies start? 
Well, uh, that depends both on how early you want to go into creating a baseline for measurement. Clearly, uh, uh, beginning at age 60 to 65, uh, that cognitive performance uh, levels begin to change significantly. Um, and by the age of 70, there's, again, about a 20% decrease in cognitive function compared to baseline. So in our, our view, uh, at a minimum, you want to capture that beginning of change, so again, age 60 to 65. But ideally, you'd even be do cognitive testing at an even earlier age, perhaps as early as uh, 40 or 50, to again, to establish that baseline. The other part that's interesting is you can do exercises uh, to improve your cognitive function. That may be something as simple as playing backgammon or, or uh, cribbage or something like that. Um, and then other tricks that you can learn, memory games, memory tricks, memory exercises, to again help yourself um, if there is a cognitive decline, so that you avoid uh, even checklists for that matter, to avoid uh, deficits that translate into a adverse clinical outcome. So you talk about evaluations, both the cognitive and uh, physical, sort of getting a sense of where an, an older physician is. What would evaluations of older physicians look like? Yeah, so there's, um, so there's two components. Um, one is a simple cognitive test. One test, for example, is called microcog. It's a very basic, it's about a 15 or 20-minute test. Uh, it's memory function, simple arithmetic, um, syllogies, and the like. Uh, and then there's also, which we've talked about a bit, is the psychomotor function. So peg games, um, drawing, simple drawing exercises and the like. Again, these are fairly standardized. They've been well-established, not particularly complicated. So a hospital, for example, or an HR department could easily uh, execute, deliver these uh, tests in a well-documented way. Um, so there could be a comparison to your own baseline, which is perhaps most important, as well as a population norm. Do you think these kinds of transition strategies could be used in other areas of healthcare careers or other industries even? Yeah, so mostly we are learning from other industries in this. The medical profession is late to the game, so to speak. Um, and there are a lot of lessons, for example, from uh, nuclear power industry or the uh, military um, we mentioned the uh, aviation industry and, and the FAA. So uh, we probably can teach others, but we first need to be taught how to do this ourselves and implement our, our own strategies, which, which again, I think is um, with the aging physician population is, is going to be important. And I do think this is something that we want to be ahead of. Um, there are now stories, actually, coincidentally, there was a story in the New York Times recently, a fairly high-profile event where a surgeon who was involved in an institution with uh, bad programmatic outcomes was a senior physician, uh, and there was some question about whether or not that, that um, age-related uh, deterioration in, in outcomes was, was perhaps a contributor uh, to these issues. So again, I, I think the more we're ahead of the curve on this, and maybe even a little late for that to be ahead of this curve, uh, the, better, the better we'll be and the better service we can provide to our patients and the population in general. Do you think it would be fair to have different standards for different kinds of medical practice? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I certainly, something like surgery, where there is a, a motor function, a technical ability, uh, is going to be appropriate for surgeons as opposed to uh, a cognitive field like internal medicine or um, 
rheumatology, so to speak, where obviously those technical skills may not be relevant at all. So I, I do think different specialties will, will uh, need different assessments of actual ability to deliver clinical care. That makes a lot of sense. How have your colleagues responded to this survey? So the fascinating part is, as far as I can tell, everyone has embraced this as an important area. Um, I've even gotten some calls from 65-year-olds who have uh, thought about this and said, boy, this is important work, and glad you're doing it, and uh, am I okay? (laughs) Not so much the last part, but um, it's actually been very encouraging when we first took this on about a year ago. We were quite apprehensive about the politics and, and the atmospherics of it, um, but it's been very heavily supported, embraced, and, uh, and championed, actually, uh, by every colleague that we've, we've encountered so far. So encouraging, good start. Sure, uh, not completely, uh, won't be smooth sailing all the way through. Well, it almost sounds as though you spoke what others had privately been thinking. You kind of uh, brought it into the light. I think that's true. I think that's true. And again, again, that speaks well both for the opportunity to accomplish this. And again, I I think the ethos of uh, the physician and the medical community at large, that they are trying to do the right thing and uh, appreciate what would be fair and reasonable support in, in continuing to provide good care for our patients. Thank you for tuning into Body of Work by Baylor College of Medicine. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and be on the lookout for our next episode, where we'll discuss outbreaks with vaccine expert Dr. Peter Hotez. If you like the show, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to listen. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcast, and Stitcher, as well as at bcm.edu slash podcast. There you can also find the episode notes, including information about the experts featured on the show. A quick note about the medical advice and opinions stated in this podcast. Each individual's health profile is unique, so please see a healthcare professional about any questions you may have. Until next time, take care.